0: Father, we come into your presence with great joy and we shout aloud your goodness. You are the God who saves. We are your people, the sheep of your pasture. And so, Lord, we enter into your gates today with thanksgiving and song. Meet with us, Lord, in a powerful way. May your word make sense. May it bring comfort and correction. May it bring encouragement and instruction. Lord, may our hearts be set on fire to follow you, to be in your presence, to serve you, to worship you. Lord, cause your people this day to praise you. And now, Lord, we pray that you will open our eyes, that we might behold wondrous things from your holy word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. I think it was a Sunday school teacher who gave this assignment to her students to write a little essay about their understanding of God. I love to hear children talk theology. Sometimes they're way off, but sometimes they are very insightful and they express it in such a simple way. Here's one particular essay that I thought interesting. A little boy wrote, one of God's jobs is making people. He makes these to put in place of the ones that die so that there'll be enough people to take care of things on earth. He doesn't make grown-ups, just kids. I think it's because they are smaller and easier to make. God's second most important job is listening to prayers. An awful lot of this goes on, especially in church and at bedtime. God sees everything, hears everything. He is everywhere, which keeps him pretty busy. But he has help He has a son. Jesus helps his father by listening to prayers. You can pray any time you want, and they are sure to hear you because they've got it worked out so that at least one of them is always on duty. (laughs) Well, the boy's understanding of prayer is really better than his theology of prayer. Unfortunately, with some of us, our theology of prayer is better than our practice of prayer. We could answer all the questions. What does the Bible say about prayer? How would we define it? What hinders prayer? What are the important ingredients to pray? What is the Lord's Prayer? How should we pray? We could answer a lot of those questions and pass a test. Often our knowledge about prayer far exceeds our practice. And I think that's why Jesus decided to tell two stories on prayer. Because they had the same problem then that we do today. We say we believe, but our practice needs to improve. I want to invite you to turn to the Gospel according to Luke. Gospel according to Luke and chapter 18. For Luke starts out chapter 18 with two stories about prayer. Now, when you find Luke 18, let me encourage you to go to the very beginning of Luke's gospel, chapter 1, just for a moment, because there's something I want you to see. And it's the way Luke wrote his gospel. So Luke chapter 1, verse 3, Luke tells us that there were multiple accounts handed down to him by the eyewitnesses regarding the life of Jesus. So Luke didn't see all of these things, but he talked to those who did. They were servants of the word, which is a great title for the apostles and a great title for any preacher, servant of the word. Luke said, I I heard these accounts, I interviewed people, and I myself investigated everything from the beginning. I did my research. Now remember, Luke is a doctor. He knows what research is all about. And he did a thorough task that any historian should of going into the past and interviewing those who were there and writing the story. And then he says, in order to write an orderly account. I did all of this so that I might write an account with a certain order to it. An orderly fashion. That is, he wrote with intentionality. Like an editor, he took these stories and he put them in a certain order. If you study the Gospels, you'll find out that some stories are in different orders. If you're thinking chronologically, And so the gospel writers apparently were taking the very stories of Jesus but putting them in their own particular order to meet their need, to accomplish the purpose, to inform the teaching that they were trying to get across to the masses. So with that in mind, we go to Luke 18 and we are reminded that Luke put these two stories back to back intentionally. Now Jesus might have addressed or given these two stories at different times, maybe even to different crowds. But Luke puts them together for a purpose. And I want to know what that purpose is. Can we discern the purpose? And will that help us understand what is being said in these two particular stories? It's kind of like a general who designs his attack on the enemy, not just from one flank, but from two sides at the same time. Uh, hoping that with this impact, the enemy will certainly be defeated. It's more powerful coming from two directions than just one. And so here's a story about prayer or the teaching on prayer coming from two angles, two attacks, not just from one perspective. The story is called a parable in verse 1. And just to remind you of what a parable is, a Parable is a common, everyday story. It's true to life, but it is able to carry the weight of spiritual truth with it. That is, it's a human interest story or a common occurrence in human life that can reflect, in a deeper way, the meaning of spiritual truth. Spiritual truth can be mysterious, abstract, but when hitched together with a common story it begins to make sense to us. We begin to see and we begin to understand. These parables teach spiritual lessons from everyday life. Usually they emphasize one main point and typically they teach by contrast or comparison. Contrast is this is not like that. Comparison is this is like that. And that's how they teach. And we're going to look at two parables By the way, parables often have good guys and bad guys in the story, and Jesus likes to switch them around. It's kind of the way he surprises you. These are stories with a twist. It's like a well-written novel that's taking you down this direction, and then suddenly it goes in the opposite direction. has a little bit of shock value to it. And so Jesus tells us a story. By the way, with both of these parables, he gives us His purpose for telling them. The first, verse 1, Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them they should always pray and not give up. Here's one of the greatest problems you and I experience in prayer. We quit before we get an answer. We get discouraged and weary. In fact, the original word behind the English phrase give up means to faint in heart, to lose heart, to lose interest. We become weak and therefore lose resolve. And we don't continue on the path we intended. So that's what he's talking about. This same word is used in Galatians chapter six and verse nine. Let us not be weary in doing good for we will reap in due season if we do not give up. Do you ever faint in prayer? You say, nope, I've always stayed conscious. Well, no, I'm not talking about losing consciousness. I'm talking about quitting. Some of us do lose consciousness when we pray, don't we? We fall asleep. But the idea is stopping our prayers because we're not getting satisfaction. Jesus says, let me tell you a story. And here's how he starts out, verse 2. He said, In a certain town there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared about men. And there was a widow in that town who kept coming to the judge with this plea. Grant me justice against my adversary. For some time the judge refused. But finally he said to himself, Even though I don't fear fear God or care about people, yet because this woman keeps pestering me, Keeps bothering me, keeps irritating me. I'll see that she gets justice so that she won't eventually wear me out with her coming. Now, let's stop right there before we get into some of the explanation of the story. This would have been a common occurrence in the daily life of those first century hearers a judge and a widow. The judge was the epitome of power, he was influential. And in control. He was a good guy, that is, most judges were the good guys of the day, and probably a Roman judge because the Jews had their elders take care of most of their civic and domestic and legal disputes. We're told, though, that this judge was different in that he was unjust and perverted. Now, we're not slandering the man because he says this of himself. When he talks about himself is, he says, I don't care about God or people. That's who I am. <laughs> so apparently, he makes his decisions based on something other than God's law and human compassion, which probably is self-interest. And unfortunately some judge gets get into that mode. There's no universal ethic, no mega truth. There's no objective revelation from God that tells us what is right and what is wrong, they say. So we've got to come up with answers ourselves and those answers change as society changes. This guy was unjust. And that day, they often would go to smaller towns and they would set up a tent because maybe a town couldn't have its own judge. They were circuit riders. And they would set up the tent and anyone could come to the tent and listen to the proceedings. But only those who were approved by the judge could come under the tent. And to get under the tent, that cost you some money. Oh, I'm sure it was a ticket, a filing fee or something like that. But back then, they just called it a bribe. Give the judge a little money, you get into the tent, he'll hear your case. A little more money, you'll go to the top of the line. It usually took a bribe to get in, and many people stood out and never got justice. Now, in contrast to that guy, look at the widow. The widow was the epitome of weakness. She had no position, she had no power, she had no advocate. Widows were the most defenseless people in Hebrew society. She had position when she had a husband, maybe, but he's gone. And unfortunately, in that day, you lost your husband, you lost your position as well. In fact, Luke is going to say in chapter 20 that there are men who make a habit of devouring widows' estates, houses. They take advantage of them because they're defenseless. She's also grieving, isn't she? She's a widow. She had a husband, but doesn't now. Don't know how recent the loss was. But she's in grief. Maybe she's like Naomi in the Old Testament book of Ruth. Remember when she came home, she had lost her husband? And they said, Naomi, you're back. She said, don't call me Naomi, call me what? Mara, which means bitter. Bitter. For God has dealt with me in a bitter fashion. My life is miserable. And that was true for most widows in that day. She had no advocate. She had no access under the tent. She was poor, no money to bribe. But she did have one thing. She had an aggressive adversary. That's what it says in verse 3. If things weren't bad enough, she had someone pestering her. For justice. We don't know who the adversary was. Most likely it was a creditor who had loaned money to her husband and he didn't pay it off before he died. And now this adversary wants justice for himself. He wants his money and he's going to go after her until she's thrown into prison and he's taken everything from her. That's the situation. Now, Moses said we need, justice, we need judges. That was Deuteronomy 16, verse 18. Appoint judges and officials for each of your tribes in every town the Lord your God is giving you, and they will judge the people fairly. That's the goal. Later on in 1 Samuel, a requirement for a judge is that they fear God. But then there's a warning, Deuteronomy 16, 19. Don't pervert justice or show partiality. Don't accept bribes, for a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and twists the words of the righteous. Righteous. Well, this was an unjust judge, and he did everything to pervert justice. The widow, no power at all, but she is persistent. She keeps coming and keeps coming and will not let this guy go until she gets what she wants. And he says, because she is bothering me or pestering me, I'll give her what she wants. In fact, the last part of verse five, she'll wear me out with her coming, an unusual Greek word that means she'll give me a black eye. Now, I don't think that means physically that she was going to pop him one, but we have that same idiom in our own language today. You don't want your reputation to be given a black eye. Maybe this guy's reputation is beginning to get sullied. Hey, everywhere I go, she can't get under the tent, but she follows me home. She sees me in the marketplace. As soon as I'm done, uh, out of the tent, there she is. She's bothering me. She's killing me. I've got to get her off my back. I'll give her justice. That's the story. Now, this is how some people translate this parable. What's the spiritual truth? Well, God is the unjust judge, and we are the widows, and if we want anything from God, we've got to badger him until he finally reluctantly opens up his hand and gives us what we want. God's tough to deal with. He's really not concerned about us. But if we bother him enough, he'll say, okay, I'll give you what you want just to get you off my back. Some people actually teach that. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. You say, well, it does say in verse 1 that we often quit, and so this parable is about praying always and not giving up. Yeah, but there's a different motive than the fact that God is hard and you've got to convince him of something. In fact, this is one of those parables of contrast. God is not like the unjust judge. He is a righteous judge. He is fair, equitable, merciful, loving, kind, truthful. He's everything that the judge was not. He cares about people so much he sent his son to die for people. That's love. His compassion knows no bounds. God is not like the judge and we are not like the widows. Notice in verse six. And the Lord said, listen to what the unjust judge says. Yeah, hear what he says and learn from it because I'm not like that. Verse seven. And will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones? Are we widows? Are we orphans? Are we strangers? No, we're his adopted children, elevated to the status of sons with an inheritance. We're part of his body. We're redeemed by his blood. We're creatures made by his love and wisdom. We're not like the widow. Okay, well... What's going on then in this parable? Well, verse seven says, God will bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night. He, will he keep putting them off? These are put in questions. Will he not answer his chosen ones? Rhetorical question, obvious answer, yes. And he will answer them speedily. Will he keep putting them off? The answer is no. But sometimes it appears that he is. Now, the parable is trying to teach you this. When you pray and don't get an immediate answer, it's not because God is unjust. It's not because God is reluctant. He wants to train you. He wants to have you yield to his will. He knows what's best for you, and he knows the timing of it. And you and I don't. He'll answer our prayers, but we've got to keep praying in faith not to overcome his reluctance, but to grab hold of his readiness and realize that if he hasn't answered my prayer today, it's not because he doesn't care, it's because today's not the right day. Do you have enough faith to believe that? That maybe God knows what's best for me better than I do. Do you have enough faith to believe that? Sometimes we get changed in our prayers You see, the one point in the passage is this. God is not like the unjust judge. Get the heart of God. He longs to answer your prayers. He's eager to do so. As we noticed last week from Psalm 65, he chose the title, I am the one who hears prayer. Unto me will all flesh come. He delights in the prayers of the, the upright, Proverbs tells us. He wants nothing more than to have his children Come to him and pray, and he will answer them. And when he answers, it will be quickly. But here's the question, verse 8. When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? When Jesus comes to answer your prayer, will he still find you praying? Will you keep praying until the answer comes? That's the question. Is your faith so short-sighted that when you don't get what you want, you quit? That's true of many of us. And that's why this prayer is aimed at a shot to our head to wake us up. God is not like the unjust judge. See his heart. The second parable is similar in some ways. There are good guys and bad guys, and the people who heard the parable for the first time were surprised at the ending of the parable. This parable also tells us its purpose in verse 9. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everybody else, Jesus told this parable. Self-righteousness will keep you from praying Arrogance will keep you from praying, at least praying in the right way. And for those of us who don't see our need, Jesus said, let me tell you a story. Things are not as they appear. He tells us the story of two men who go to the temple to pray. One is a Pharisee, verse 10 says, and the other a tax collector. Now again, if you were hearing this story for the first time, didn't know how things were going to turn out, hadn't read the last chapter of the novel, at this point you would say the good guy is the Pharisee and the bad guy is the tax collector. There would be no question about it. All good and decent people felt that the Pharisees were moral and religious heroes, You have to remember the Pharisees started during a time of turmoil. It was around 150 BC and the Greeks were trying to impose pagan worship on the Jews, but the Maccabean revolt took place. Judas Maccabeus led a revolt and others stood with him and the group that stood with him, some religious priests, religious laymen, they stood with him and they became known as the Pharisees. They put their life on the line. Some of them probably died For the freedom of the Jews. And they became heroes. Why seeing a Pharisee standing at the temple. Would be like seeing a World War II vet. Standing by the monument at Pearl Harbor. You'd have nothing but admiration. And respect. That's the good guy. The Pharisee is the one who is devout. And dedicated to the law. He gave generously more than most, fasted regularly at least twice a week. Oh, these were the best of the best. And the tax collector, well, you couldn't get any worse than tax collectors. To most good and decent people, tax collectors were the scum of the earth. They were traitors, extortionists. If the Pharisees were patriots, then the Tax collectors indeed, were traitors. You see, Rome would hire Jews, certain Jews, to collect taxes from their fellow Jews. They were also given the authority to take more than the actual tax and put it into their own pockets. So they became wealthy at the expense of their brethren. They were hated and rejected so much that the only people that they could affiliate with were the rest of the scum of the earth, as they were called. Oh, people hated tax collectors. There was something about them. They they were just dishonest. Pharisees were the people that you could trust. You'd want them running your, your 401K, your retirement plan. You'd want them marrying into your family. They were the good guys. Tax collectors, worst people in the world. But listen to their prayers. Verse 11, the Pharisees stood up and prayed either to himself or about himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers. And then he peeked during his prayer and pointed, or like this tax collector standing over there. I fast twice a week, which is true. I give a tenth of all I possess, which is true. Verse 13, the prayer of the tax collector is so different. He stood at a distance because he wasn't allowed to get near the temple. He wouldn't even look up to heaven, whereas Pharisees often stood with their heads raised up and their arms extended, making a show of themselves. The scripture says that the tax collector beat his breast, which, by the way, was primarily something a woman did, not a man. And he said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Wow, those prayers are just as different as the two men. But here's where the twist comes in. There's something about the prayer of the Pharisee that bothers us. It's so smug and conceited, isn't it? It's so self-righteous. He really believed these things, and these things were true. He thanked God that he wasn't as bad off as everyone else. He thanked God that he was better than everyone else. There's a conceit in this prayer that bothers us because if we were to list the sins we hate the most, pride and arrogance would be at the top. That is the sins we hate in other people. It's in us, but we don't see it. We don't think we're affected, but we see pride everywhere in everybody else. And we hate it so much because pride is often exposed at our expense. People put you down to make themselves look good, right? And that's exactly what the Pharisee is doing here. He's putting everyone else down to exalt himself. He has a good attitude toward himself, a bad attitude toward everyone else, and almost no consideration of God. He uses the name God, but as it says, he prays about himself or he prays to himself. And I think a lot of people pray that way. They pray from a standing, from a position where they think they have something to gain leverage with God. They pray from a position of their own righteousness and of their own goodness. My friend, prayer is never offered on that basis because you are not righteous and even your righteousness is as filthy rags. That's why you end every prayer in Jesus' name because no prayer gets to heaven unless it's clothed in the righteousness of Christ. But a lot of people pray this way, and that's why they don't get answers to their prayers. Rather selfish prayers, conceited, smug. Prayer of the tax collector, though, is really a model prayer. He understood he was in the presence of God, and when you are in the presence of God, the only thing you can think about is your sin. I mean, that's the thing that hits you first and hits you hardest. He is holy and you are not. The reason why we know that the Pharisee wasn't praying in the presence of God or didn't recognize the presence of God is because it was all about how great he is. But when you see God, you say with Isaiah, woe is me, I am undone. That's what Isaiah said when he saw the glory of the Lord in the temple. Or you'll say with Job in Job 42, I used to hear about you with the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you and I despise myself and I repent in dust and ashes. The closer you are to God, who is light, the more you see your imperfections, your sin, and the more it bothers you. That's why the only way we can really pray is with the right heart attitude. This second parable is about your heart. It needs to be broken. It needs to be confessing. It needs to acknowledge that it is destitute. The widow prayed because she had nothing and we pray like the tax collector because we know that we are sinners. The only hope we have of God hearing us is for us to pray for mercy. That's what he asked for. God have mercy on me I'm a sinner. I'm not righteous like that other guy. And when he said, have mercy on me, he was saying, atone for my sin. And not too far away from where he was praying was the altar where they sacrificed the animals to atone for sin. Do you realize that you need to have your sins forgiven and only Jesus can do it? Do you realize when you come to pray that it's nothing that you've done? It's not your faithfulness. It's not your accomplishments. The only ground for praying is, I'm a sinner saved by grace, and I come in Jesus' name. Well, I like what Jesus said. He said in verse 14, I tell you that this man, the tax collector, rather than the other man, the Pharisee, went to his home justified before God. And here's the principle. Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Luke, why did you put these two stories together, these two lessons from Christ? Luke would say, because I want you to understand that the heart of prayer is understanding that God's heart is willing and merciful and eager And the only reason you have to keep praying until you see fulfillment is not because he's reluctant, but you need to be changed. You need to grow. The timing's not right. Trust him. But when he comes, will you still have the faith to keep praying? See God's heart. And the second story is what about your own heart? Do you realize how destitute you really are? Then pray from that perspective because God loves to give grace to the humble. He always resists the proud. When I pray, I am to assault the throne of grace with faith. Isaiah 65 says, don't give yourself any rest, and don't give God any rest when you come to call upon him. So yeah, we can be aggressive like the widow is, but we come as children, we come as God's chosen ones, to a God who loves to hear and answer our prayers. Totally different situation. I love the story of George Mueller because, again, it's a story that surprises us with a bit of a twist. George Mueller was a great man of faith. Many of you know he was a British pastor who was in charge of an orphanage in the 1800s. They often didn't have food to provide for the orphans. So He would gather the orphans together, and I don't remember how many were in there, but there were dozens and dozens, maybe a hundred. And they would sit down at the table with no food, and Mueller would say, let's pray and thank God for the food we are about to receive. And there'd be a knock on the door, and someone would bring flour, and they'd bake bread or produce, and they'd have a meal. And then they would praise God for the meal. And that didn't happen just once or twice, but multiple times. Now that's faith, and people say, well, that guy just has the gift of faith. Maybe he did. But I want to read something to you from his diary that I find very instructive. This is November 1844. Mueller says, I began to pray for the conversion of five of my friends, five individuals. I determined to pray every day without a single intermission or interruption, whether I was sick or in health, on land or sea, whatever the pressure of my agenda, my engagements might be, I would pray every day for these five souls to be saved. I prayed for 18 months straight before the first was converted. And he wrote it in his diary. 18 months. I thanked God for that conversion and prayed for the others. The second was saved five years later. He prayed every day for five years Now this is the man who prayed and a meal came immediately. Maybe it wasn't God's timing. He never got discouraged. He never doubted. He just kept praying to the God who answers prayer. Another year later, so this was six years after he started, the third was converted. He thanked God for the three and he said, I kept praying for the two for 36 more years. And he wrote in his diary just before he died, these last two have not been converted yet, but I pray that they will be. I hope in God. I will pray and look for the answer. There's that faith. I will pray every day and look for the answer. And he died, and they were never saved before he died. But in 1897, 52 years after he started praying, the last two came to faith in Christ. 52 years, I can't pray for 50 minutes and stay focused. Or 50 days and keep the faith because I quit. So the Lord says, Don, I want you to hear this story about how I'm not like an unjust judge. I love to answer your prayer, but in my time. So keep praying, and when I come to answer it, may you be found praying in faith like Mueller. And oh, by the way, Don, when you pray, understand this there's nothing in you at all that would move me to answer. You're a sinner, and only by my grace could you even come into my presence. Remember who you are, remember who I am, and then pray. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this encouragement. And even this rebuke. Thank you for letting us see from these stories that your heart is willing and our heart is wicked. That you are ready to answer prayer, but you do it in your time and you'll do it according to your perfect will. And in prayer we are to yield to your sovereign will and wait upon you in faith without discouragement until the answer comes. Oh, Lord, I pray that each one of us would realize today that the sin of our heart would forever keep us from heaven were it not for your mercy and grace. And you not only save us by grace, you intend that we should live by grace and even pray that way. Lord, I pray that you will open our eyes, that we might see what prayer is really all about and in some way improve our prayer life today. In Jesus' name, amen.